the idea of taking what seems to be kind of separate and competing constituency and reweaving them behind a common project is fundamentally, I think, one of the missions of the left and one of the missions of the publications of the left. That's Bhaskar Sankara, founding editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine. Today we hear from Bhaskar about his work at Jacobin and what it takes to produce a magazine of socialist analysis and polemic in America. We also learn some of his views on Trump and Clinton just in time for Election Day and get a sense of his vision for the future of the left. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In 2009, a 21-year-old Bhaskar Sankara decided to start a magazine in his dorm room at George Washington University. The magazine would be committed to a leftist critique of American politics. It would endeavor, among other things, to bring terms like socialism and Marxism, mostly taboo in America since the Cold War, back into the political conversation. Well, with a current circulation of over 15,000 print subscribers and a web audience of about 700,000 a month, they seem to have done reasonably well so far. In our conversation, Bhaskar talks about the short history of his publication and how it has thus far tried to differentiate itself from other magazines of liberal left opinion. He also discusses the current election and explores the possible reasons for and implications of the rise of Sanders on the left and Trump on the right. Finally, Bhaskar considers the near future of the American left. That and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Bhaskar, thanks so much for coming on the podcast with me. Happy to be here. So you're founding editor and publisher of Jacobin, a print and online magazine that advances, as your website describes, socialist perspectives on politics, economics, and culture. So my first question is, why did you start this magazine? I would say initially the impulse for Jacobin came from a set of politics. So it wasn't necessarily an interest in editing or publishing for its own sake. But the idea that the left was small and insular and largely speaking to the same few thousand people. And it had abandoned, I think, a lot which was important and relevant about the left and people's day-to-day lives, you know, focus on political economy, understanding the wider forces that structure our day-to-day lives and so on. I don't think it had devolved into a lot of single-issue campaigns and, and things like that that really couldn't construct a narrative that connected to, to regular people. So the idea being we wanted to, me and the initial kind of group of writers around um, Jackman, wanted to remember why we became socialists in the first place. And we thought, we're not that unusual. We're pretty unusual, but we're not super, super unusual. So there must have been something compelling, something important in, in the initial kind of like the narratives, the, the big narrative of socialism, the dream of social progress, the dream of a world without class exploitation, without unnecessary suffering, you know, and so on. And we thought these ideas were so compelling that even if they weren't necessarily going to win a majority of people, they at the very least would reach win more than the few thousand people that were um, consuming it in a, in a small kind of like ghetto. So the idea being we would take the left out of just a subculture of the left and we would try to reach a potential audience and an audience that we thought existed, but we couldn't be sure of that. Mm. So in other words, our audience was the unpoliticized, our audience was liberals, we'd be ambassadors for a set of thought that was basically, you know, dead. And obviously, 
we also tried to make interventions within the left, but that was mostly about kind of an orthodoxy in certain ways about the um, importance of class politics and organizations, about, you know, a, a very traditional, in a sense, socialist program in a left that was at that point drifting towards anarchist ideas or other kind of ultra leftist ideas, or that was focused primarily on, you know, issues of identity and representation. We, we were in a way kind of throwbacks, but we were doing so in a way that was um, meant to be fresh and accessible and whatnot. So it often confused people because it was a combination of, you know, what people thought to be more, for lack of a better word, innovative ways to connect to people and reach people. But the actual politics, you know, there was we had no pretenses of not being anything but orthodox, um, you know, in our politics. So I think the first time I heard about Jacobin, and this might be true for plenty of other people, is when you publish an article by Seth Ackerman called Burn the Constitution. So there was something that seemed deliberately provocative or confrontational about that article. And then, of course, the title of your magazine uh, seems also to call to mind, rather than distract from, this idea of revolt or rebellion. So have, have I got that sort of right in your view? And, and if so, why that rhetorical strategy? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think in certain ways, we obviously try to make... Uh, provocations, you know, on certain things. So Burn the Constitution is is basically an article just about how constitutionism has not done the left any favors, how the structure of the U.S. US society, you know, it's intended this way if you read the Federalist Papers, you read our, our founders, was made to suppress popular aspirations. And the Constitution isn't really the embodiment of it. It's it's kind of the, the sign of a lot of popular defeat. So, you know, just pushing against this common sense orthodoxy most people have you know, I'm, I'm a little bit softer than Seth on, you know, one part of the Constitution, and that's just the Bill of Rights, but the Bill of Rights weren't even in the initial, mm-hmm. you know, Constitution. They were they were foisted upon it um, to begin with. Seth's argument, I would guess, is just every single other Western democracy is, has basically enshrined the same rights, but just not in the same kind of form, without the same kind of fixed, rigid, rigid Constitution, and so on. And that's that's well taken. I just, you know, I, I, I in a way, want to find something progressive in the American experience, and that's not a terrible place to start for me, the Bill of Rights, at least. Now, when it comes to uh, the name Jacobin, well, in a certain way, it was meant to be vague in a sense and just connote something radical. It wasn't meant to directly allude to the French Revolution necessarily, mm-hmm. though, of course, you know, we are defenders of the French Revolution. You know, I myself am pretty much an absolutist when it comes to my opposition to the death penalty. Even in a revolutionary situation, it's hard to compare the the many deaths of the French Revolution in a brief period compared to, like, the long misery and suffering that came before it. Um, or the Napoleonic Wars afterwards, which which killed a lot more people. But then, but then um, it also would be the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian right? Revolution, yeah, especially since Ramiki came on and with our our logo and everything else. Yeah, it, it, it connotes the Haitian Revolution for a certain reason, though, because what we were trying to emphasize is the power of the Enlightenment and these ideas and their resonance, kind of, so kind of a broader universalism. So I think both on the right, I think there was a rejection of that kind of period of chaotic universalism, kind of the Burkean, you know, mm-hmm. mold. But then on the left, there was this idea that, well, the French Revolution wasn't inspiring at all because it was still Eurocentric, it's still blah, blah, blah. So we wanted to basically say, no, in fact, these ideas originated in Europe, but if you look at the actual writings for the Haitian Revolution, you know, these are people that took them to heart and applied them 
to their own circumstances and their own quest to live better lives. So we were harkening back to kind of an earlier era of, you know, the beginning of the Enlightenment, the beginning of that struggle, because that's how we situate, in many ways, socialist politics, right? So we're not the negation of liberalism. So this is maybe why we're not as provocative as people might think. Mm. So we're not anarchists who think that we want to create something new, so we want to burn everything down and start at year zero and then build something, a different kind of society. I see socialist politics as being the continuation and the fulfillment of the dream of liberalism. So when liberals talk about political and civil rights, we agree with them. And we agree with their rhetoric and the way where it draws inspiration from. What we want to say is that why don't you apply that same logic to economic and social spheres as well? So in a way, we want to take liberalism and make it fulfill its own promise, you know, fulfill the unfulfilled promise of the Enlightenment. And that's a way I've always situated socialist politics and, and generally Jackman contributors uh, do as well. Well, that's that's interesting because I'm guessing you hear, especially in, in America, and given the sort of the legacy of, of Cold War debates in America, I'm, I'm guessing you hear a lot of criticism of socialism in general. So how do you respond to the argument, for instance, that, say, the failure of the Soviet Union, or even the crimes of the Soviet Union, somehow prove that Marxism is, at its core, uh, politically bankrupt? Or at least that, that Marxism or socialism, if actually applied, will lead to tyranny. I feel like that, that argument circulates a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it circulates less among younger people. Um, and I think the embrace that a lot of people um, have the Sanders campaign, you know, self-described mm -hmm. socialist, shows that it doesn't have the same resonance that it used to. But maybe it actually should in the sense that communism in the 20th century was a social and moral, you know, catastrophe mm -hmm. in, in many, many senses. So I think we still have to push back against people who's, who claim kind of the two totalitarianism thesis and equate you know, Hitler's Germany with Stalin's Russia, because I do think one was a profoundly, a project profoundly anti-rational, built on kind of like the worst sorts of racism and so on. There was nothing, there was nothing beyond that. Mm -hmm. Whereas Stalin, I think, wasn't the threat to the, to the basic tenets that, that, you know, civilization up to that point was built on. You know, it was a particularly bad manifestation of one branch of a project, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So I think like, just to correct the historical record, this is the one place where I do defend Stalinism, which is that it's not fascism. Okay. Uh, <laughs> now, but when it comes to the actual, you know, practice there, I think, for one thing, you know, I, I hate to use the argument that, oh, that wasn't socialism, we want real socialism, because that's the same thing that, you know, libertarians always use. Oh, you know, our capitalism is impure and enough. You know, the problems that we see now in society is the lack of capitalism, not the manifestation of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So I think that's somewhat easy, too easy of an argument. What I would say is that democratic socialists and, and anti-Stalinist socialists or socialists from the Trotsky traditions, from lots of other traditions, have been among the earliest and most consistent criticizers of, you know, actually existing socialism in the, these states. Um, to this day, Jackman is still very critical of, of Cuba, you know, which mm. American liberals, you know, tend to like and look at with, with um, you know, rose-tinted glasses um, more often than not. So, you know, I think that... Um, then at that point, we've always criticized those societies. And, and part of that is based on the idea of if socialism is the extension of democracy from the purely formal political realm into the social and economic realms, how do we analyze societies in which there was not even democracy in the in civil society, in the social realm? So in other words, if you're in a 
society like East Germany, you're a worker and you can't form an independent trade union if you can't engage in, you know, basic, you know, civil rights, the right to demonstrate, to form assemblies and, and so on. How is that society any more socialist than, let's say, West Germany mm-hmm. and the society that developed there? So when I look at the heights of the achievements of the socialist movement and the closest we came to actually building socialism, I actually look at Scandinavian social democracy, or at the very least, I look at, let's say, in Sweden in the 1970s, where you have huge swaths of the economy decommodified, you know, taken out of the market and enjoyed as social rights, where you had powerful unions, you had a political representative of the working class and the social democratic party governing. Obviously, they were doing so within capitalism, so there was constraints to what they could accomplish. And also, a lot of those accomplishments were rolled back because, in a way, the workers got a favorable position in the game at that point, but the rules of the game were still dictated and constrained by, by capital. They weren't able to develop enough structural power to actually rewrite the rules of, of the game. So there was obviously limits to that experience, but I would imagine my vision of, of socialism would come from the high point of those kind of social democratic experiments being pushed you know, even further. So it's a very different... You know, it's a different tradition, and I think that when we actually look at the successes of the welfare state in the, in the advanced capitalist world, when you look at how favorably people, let's say, in Britain view the NHS, the way people in the United States, you know, respect and defend programs like Medicare, you know, you would actually see that a lot of these programs are actually successful. People do like democracy. They do like um, enjoying um, the necessities of social rights and so on. Besides for that, it's an argument that needs to be won, and it's also a sign that the left needs to learn from the failures of the 20th century mm-hmm. and, you know, prevent any future scenario where, you know, any attempt to supersede capitalism isn't done by multi-party democracy. We're also, we're allowing people the right to kind of roll back gains. So, mm-hmm. in other words, me and you right now can go outside and we can start a monarchist party. You know, we could call for a return to feudalism or something like that. We have that legal right. No one would vote for us. In the same way, for me, a functioning socialist society that's matured 40, 50, 60 years in its development will have plenty of pro-capitalist parties. I just don't anticipate them polling more than 6, 7, 8%. Um, but, but yeah, definitely there's a lot within the experience of the 20th century that socialists have to grapple with. And I think people who have those questions are right to ask them. I think they're becoming increasingly infrequent as the memory kind of drifts away and also especially as people deal with the day-to-day you know misery of, of you know a generation that's going to have worse living conditions in the past generation and so on but um as people who are socialists i think we should be concerned about the legacy of state socialism even if the rest of the world is no longer that's why i'm concerned with certain conditions and practices even in governments like cuba which are not as bad as you know a lot of these other previous attempts at state state socialism. So I'm really interested in the way you situate your work at Jacobin very explicitly in a political conversation. So I have a couple books here, uh, both associated with Jacobin. Uh, the first is a very well-illustrated text called The ABCs of Socialism. And the second is a, is a collection of essays uh, that you co-edited with Sarah Leonard at The Nation called The Future We Want, Radical Ideas for the new century. The thread that seems to link both of these texts is that they aren't just an assortment of opinions written by people left of center. Rather, they seem to want to advance a kind of programmatic socialist vision for American politics. So how has producing these kinds of works been different in your view than just getting writers together to talk about whatever they want? 
one distinction is there's a lot of socialist publications that are, let's say they're associated with a party or a group, they're line publications. So they have a certain position on everything. Uh, we never created a line publication, but we also didn't go to the other extreme of, let's say, The Nation or In These Times. So those are other publications that are more like all over the place and ecumenical, I think, to the extreme. And then we created a box publication. There are certain things that are acceptable and within our spectrum of debate, and there are certain things that are outside of it. So you still have enough debates and enough nuance and enough kind of like argument that it doesn't read as dull and people see an internal life and vibrancy to the to the ideas. They feel like they're alive and not just scripture handed down from above. But at the same time, there is a set of principles and a history guiding it. So in other words, like we haven't invented a politics. We're picking up the threads of past political traditions. We're trying to improve in them and renovate on them, but we're acting kind of with the experience of, of history, you know, with, with something. So I think that's one thing that's different between Jack and a lot of other publications. In a way, this is why Adolf Reed and some others call us the new old left, because we're essentially, you know, operating very precisely within within a tradition, but we're doing so in a way where there's debate. I mean, you can even look look at the, the desk we're sitting on. We have The Roots of American Communism by Theodore Draper. Right. We have The American Socialist Movement by um, Ira um, Kipnis. And both these books were published originally in the 1950s. So, I mean, we're, we're students of history. We, we know the left. We can situate our role within it and our politics within it in a way that I think most other young publications don't have. So that almost sounds like a, like a dogmatic or doctrinaire thing to say that we're guided by by history, but it's not like an innate thing that we're, we're following like it's from God, but it's from an actual engagement with our tradition, and we're trying to renovate and making it accessible and, and open to you know, a new generation of people. It does seem like there's a kind of conscious movement going on in the work at Jacobin. So that's, I think that's reflected also by the fact that you seem to have a lot of reading groups in cities across, I, I guess, across the U.S., but also internationally. Right. So could you talk a bit about that? What are these reading groups, and, and where and why have they been sprouting up? There's around 80 reading groups around the world. The idea being we don't want people to passively read Jackman or consume, consume it like they're consumers of a product or something like that. We want them to actually re-engage with Jackman because they feel like they're part of a socialist movement, a movement with the past and, you know, hopefully a future. And in a sense, with these reading groups, we furthered our role as ambassadors of socialist ideas. So there's been tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who have read Jackman. It's been their first introduction to socialism, socialist ideas. In the same way, there's been, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people who have been to reading groups. And this has been their first introduction to, like, a physical space where they're interacting with dozens of socialists and they actually see the socialist movement, you know, with this best foot forward, not with sectarian infighting or with just overall marginality or, like, the litany of lost causes. You know, you go to any kind of socialist rally and you see, like, Free Mumia and, like, you know, whatever else. Right. There's, like, four or five of them that pop up every single time. And that just has, like the usual sense of desperation and defeat, but also politics as historical reenactment. And I think we consider ourselves, you know, ambassadors for socialist ideas and and the extent that we can offer a different kind of vision, more vibrancy, and beyond that, a social and cultural space where people can come in, they could ask definitional questions, they can engage in debates, they can engage in conversations that don't require too much prerequisite kind of reading at the same time it's not dumbing it down i think that's a balance of of jackman that we need to 
walk and obviously we need to constantly recalibrate but it's this balance between not condescending to people by saying things in too basic and too boring of a way but at the same time you know not intimidating people to the point that they don't feel like with some effort or some work they could engage with all this you know pretty pretty easily so it's finding this middle brow socialism is actually harder to produce than it you know seems Bhaskar, you started Jacobin when you were uh, 21 in your dorm room at George Washington University. It, it honestly seems like it's the sort of story that if Aaron Sorkin were a radical leftist, he might have written a movie about it. No, like, it's, 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 yeah. it's not. It's not okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah, like our, I mean, what we've accomplished is good for the left, but in the you know in the grand scheme of things, it's still you know we're we're reaching. You know, 20,000 print readers, and then, you know, a few hundred thousand, close to a million, like, online um, visitors, but in a country of 330 million, you know, it's it's not, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's small. It's well, small. I, I, think, I, think, I think at best we got, like, you know, indie short. That, that's, that's the level. We're, like, a 20-minute indie <laughs> yeah, short right okay. now. Right. So what, what were the... What were the f- one that's like black and white and you know <laughs> yeah maybe um yeah but maybe, it would, maybe it would like a mumblecore one it would no be a mumblecore maybe yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. maybe like joe swanberg or something but what were the early days of the magazine like well i mean it was in a way simpler because the stakes were lower so no one was really paying attention if you mess up and you had time to kind of learn and i, I had time to kind of like hone a craft and relative isolation which mm-hmm. is actually nice i think a lot of times it's going to make me sound prematurely aged but um nowadays people feel like they should be writing for the public right away i think there's value especially for young writers and writing things that no one will read or see or maybe a handful of people will read or see or just writing things that won't even be published right you know in the same way a lot of early jackman work was slowly learning the craft of editing and publishing mm-hmm. and doing so with relatively low stakes and no expectations, which was actually very, very useful. Then we were able to slowly grow and scale organically from that point. That's why it helped that we didn't have any funding to begin with, right? Or or things like that. Mm -hmm. It it was actually a much better way to build Mm -hmm. something sustainable, Mm -hmm. rather than people who just get a chunk of money from a grant or donors or have money up front or, or whatnot. So in a way, you know, that was, that was useful. So, you know, that, that's what it was basically like. It was, you know, Quiet and lonely, and that was a good thing. It's one thing to be 21 and to say, I sort of have these political opinions outside the mainstream, and I want to express them by writing for my university paper or maybe trying to get an internship at a a leftist magazine somewhere. It's another thing entirely, it seems, to me at least, to start a magazine and to think, maybe this thing will be sustainable. That that requires a certain level of boldness. So what what, what did you, did you just feel really bold and savvy in those early days and so you thought, I'm going to try this? I mean, the main thing is, it just seemed like... I had access to, I, I had the raw set of ideas to actually edit the thing, even if, you know, technically I was still improving as an, as a, as an editor, but I had the contacts, and I think that's the most important part. We had very strong writers from the beginning, people like Chris Maisano, Peter Fraze, um, I knew from DSA stuff, you know, later on, um, Mike Begg, Seth Ackerman, we had Megan Erickson, we had a lot of people who had particular sets of expertise or knowledge. A lot of them were either graduate students or, in Megan's case, you know, was, was you know, moving towards, like, uh, becoming a teacher and, and stuff like that. You know, they had a set of, of specialty, a set of expertise, and then within a year, uh, Ramike joined on, and obviously he has uh, expertise or who's developing expertise around design and branding and, and things like that. So, 
I think once I knew that either I had access to, because of socialist ideas and socialist thoughts and socialist networks, I had access to, I think, the right people. Then beyond that, it was a glue that attracted more people. So if this was just a media venture, then who would care, right? Because essentially, there would be no goodwill to play off. There'd be no reason for it to exist. Because of the socialist publication, it was just self-evident why it should exist. And especially as a print publication, it was it was important because if you look at these rival, you know, I hate the word rival, but you know, in in the non-competitive mm-hmm. sense, rival, the socialist publication like Dissent was founded in in 1952, 1953. Well, anyway, Dissent was founded I think in 1953. And then you had Monthly Review, which was founded around 1949. You had New Politics, which came out of the 60s. So you had your core of existing socialist journals and um, New Left Review, which came out of the the 1960s. And they were all from that generation of the 50s, 60s, or, or even earlier. So Jacobin was the first big effort, really, since then, mm. in a sustainable way. And also, if you look at what the high point was, you know, I was always kind of chasing benchmarks from the beginning. So the idea that the Senate had between two and 3,000 subscribers, all right, I wanted to pass them. And Monthly Review had a base around 3,000, I wanted to pass them. Uh, then New Left Review had a, has a base between five and six, but a peak, historic peak, at seven. Mm. So right now that we're pushing, like, 20, now we're in our own terrain where we have no one past the historic high point, more than double the historic high point of like partisan review of all these other publications were mm. were larger, but now we're just like, you know. Well, and so so I mean in in other words, like yes, it did require a degree of like confidence, but the confidence was rooted in the fact there was already a set of politics that I was drawing right. on. There was a script and there was people who had the expertise to actually execute, whereas I just had the broad bigger idea. Well, but another difference to point out is that most of those magazines you listed are very self-consciously academic in style, and there's something, Jacobin certainly incorporates scholarship, but it's, it also is written in a more sort of direct, I suppose, that's a, that's a poor phrase for it, but a more direct style. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends online and print somewhat, but for sure we're aiming to be the corollary as far as accessibility of, like, the New Republic. So neither too high nor too low. Mm-hmm. So even now, even with our daily coverage, let's say during the Sanders stuff, whatever, we're self-consciously not trying to be like Breitbart. You know, we're not mm-hmm. going for the cheap stuff. I'm not even talking about that DNC email leaks, the, the first round of leaks, because there was nothing interesting there. It's one of the greatest. I mean, I don't know. It's like, it's like, it's just insane how people on all sides think that there was like revelations and that it was boring as hell. Like there was so you don't there. think that there was like a self, like, there was like a concerted effort to like undermine Sanders? Campaign. No, I think okay. Sanders lost. And I think that it's surprising how little coordination there was and also like how boring it seems like the lives of these DNC staffers were. I think there was definitely people like Neera Tandon and others who, who were very much trying to find ways to hit at Sanders. The effort to use, I think the latest round of revelation is more interesting because it confirms what we know, efforts to hit him around race and gender and all that stuff like was used so opportunistically and so callously. But it was pretty obvious that, you know, that was the case anyway. And also, who can blame them? Like, they were trying to win a election and they felt some sort of allegiance right. and fealty to Hillary Clinton. And even this whole thing with, like, journalists colluding or collaborating, I just want to be useful. If, you know, if I... Uh, <laughs> If, you know, Jeremy Corbyn wants me to say something, you know, if they want to reach out to me, sure, I probably would. You know, so that, that to me is no real revelation. Either either way, you know, it's no surprise that there's some partisanship and, and coverage in the media. Mm-hmm. But In the history of Jacobin, since you started it in your early 20s, have there been any major 
missteps in the past of Jacobin? Or rather, I'll, I'll phrase it differently. What have you learned about the world of magazine writing or of publishing or of politics that you didn't know when you first started the magazine? Basically, I'm, I'm very comfortable with what we've accomplished and where we're at. To the extent there's been missteps, it's hard to disaggregate them from sure. the things that it went, went well. I'm fine with, with the accretion of you know mistakes and blunders and, and whatever else, of which there's, there's many. So mm -hmm. I'd put it this way, that one thing with publications, and I always had a sense of from the beginning, but I think a lot of people don't, is that it's not a matter of creating a master plan or creating a big statements or whatnot. It's slow and consistent, steady work. And over time, that leads to something, accumulates to something. So, in other words, we might have three, four, or five missteps a day, but we're also doing 10, 15 other things. Right. And, you know, you know what I mean? So, there's no mm -hmm. big, decisive moments. I would say the thing that I learned is just the importance of political confidence and explaining your ideas, but also, I think, being a willingness to engage and grapple with other people's ideas on their own terms. So, one of the ways that I came to the idea of creating a publication in part was because of you know my interest and engagement with the National Review mm. and with actually that particular period of late 1950s early 1960s conservatism and the kind of whole Myers and others are their fusionist project around American conservatism and I find these thinkers extremely useful but to, in order to do so I had to read them on their own terms I find a lot of you know, a whole set of, of liberal thinkers I actually find less intellect. I mean, liberalism mm. is, in the, the U.S. has been devoid of, of the same level of intellectual depth as either leftism or conservatism to a certain extent. Like, you know, there's, but Rawls and others, you know, these are people that I think that me and a lot of other people involved with Jackman have dealt with and engaged with, but on their own terms. What do you, what do you mean by, and I'm fascinated you bring up well, fusionism because the last, one of the last episodes we did um, was in fact on a, a couple sort of mid-century conservative thinkers, Russell Kirk and um, right. Stephen Tonser and yeah. their relationship with this fusionism. So what, what do you mean by taking them on their own terms and what did you learn from that? Well, I think, I think part of it is like, you know, you might disagree with what they're trying to do, but you could still understand their ideas, but also their efforts and execution and pitfalls and whatnot without... So in other words, it's trying to read history without being like a Howard Zinn type mm -hmm. and just trying to like, you know, you're reading it from below or you're on one side or whatnot. It's like a level of detachment. And I think we're able to combine detachment with a sense of political and moral clarity as well. You have your heart and your soul with a normative vision, but you're able to look at things critically, mm. which means looking at the left critically and our marginality and things like that. What was the other part of your question? What was it about the notion of fusionism that was right. attractive to you? So fusionism in, in particular was this idea was that the U.S. conservative movement was isolated and marginalized. And at the time, there was the common trope that the U.S. was an inherently liberal country, inherently center-left country in a certain way, without the same history of feudalism, without the history of domestic reaction in the same extent. I mean, this is their version of history. I think we right. find plenty of, of our own history of counter-revolution and whatnot. I mean, if you actually look at the history of the 19th century and the planner class and the ideologues around them and the history of the reaction to the to reconstruction and you know the history of like racism and extremism of the KKK and these other mass movements there's a deep history of the American right but at this time let's say this brief moment in the 40s and 50s you know you had this notion that American was uh, inherently kind of a center left nation mm -hmm. or at least a nation hostile to conservatism the you had center yeah. Exactly. You had Eisenhower pushing through massive expansion of federal government. You have all these all these things and you could see 
how isolated and defeated the conservative movement was, how in many ways they were locked out of academia. And this continued later on. Some of the great historians of the conservative movement, like George Nash, never got academic appointments. So, in a way, their marginality and their, their ability to kind of crawl out of it, of course, can't help but be an inspiration for the left. Of course, it's easier to organize capitalists for capitalism than it is to organize, you know, workers for, for something, you know, different. Our task is much harder, but in a way, the idea of taking what seems to be kind of separate and competing constituency and reweaving them behind a common project is fundamentally, I think, one of the missions of the left and one of the missions of the publications of the left. I think Bernie Sanders has done a lot better than, you know, we could have on our, on our own, but that's essentially what we saw with that movement was a movement and a coalition that spanned everywhere from workers and, and, and you know, trade unionists and the kind of the traditional constituency of the left to, like, people who were involved in that kind of Occupy mo moment, involved in the social movements like Black Lives Matter or whatever, you've seen this like broad stitching together coalition, especially among young people, around a message and a set of demands and a, and a figure. And I like to think that Jackman is contributing in a way to that, that effort to stitch together kind of something to the left of a liberalism without necessarily saying we're going to burn it all down. Because I do think, if I had to guess, what we're going to see in our lifetime on the progressive side of the spectrum is the return of, in one name or another, a reform liberalism. So a movement pushing for an expansion of the social welfare state, a movement pushing for a certain set of essentially social democratic demands, of which I think the socialist left will be on the left wing of that movement, kind of trying to push it and bear it towards confrontation with capital. And that's the confrontation that I think is necessary to actually win durable demands. But I don't think we're going to see a a mass socialist movement okay. necessarily in my my lifetime okay. but that's that's my best hunch at like you know a good case scenario of what will happen i see some of the cores of that in in sanders but i i think in a way i hope at least that this could be kind of our goldwater moment 2016 is to us what 1964 was to them and in 1965 it looked like liberalism would reign supreme forever I think maybe right after this election, it looks like Trumpism might be a major force to be reckoned with in the long, time, long term. You know, I hope that the kind of the wild card possibility is that the Sanders-Democrat kind of coalition is actually better positioned to influence the next 10, 15 years of American politics. And demographically, I mean, it would appear that we are. I want to ask a quick follow-up question about that, but then talk about the current election. So if, if Sanders, in this analogy, if Sanders is Goldwater, do you have a, uh, a Ronald Reagan, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there's promising, uh, well, I don't know, let's see if Matt Damon wants to run or something like that, right? <laughs> um, no, the, I mean, I guess the, the closer corollary would be like Jason uh, Statham or whatever his name is, right? Um, like, I didn't know he was a... Oh, yeah, he's a lefty, action, but I mean, just action. like a, a, a sh movie, yeah, uh, sure, sure, you know, sure, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think Keith Ellison is... is is far is the most promising of the potential heirs to, to Sanders for many reasons. I think Elizabeth Warren is a bit of a kind of like she's falsely alluring for leftists. In other words, like, mm. I think she seems to be a good person. She's fighting for some decent things. But let's say if we're going to put this in historical analogy, Sanders comes from kind of more, a more of a Debsian socialist tradition in the sense that he's very much directly talking about class struggle. He's coming from that kind of framework. I would situate Warren in more kind of the, the progressive, kind of middle-class progressive um you know, ism of the, the 1910s. I think uh, Ellison has the potential to really 
reach a lot of people and, and be successful as a hair to Sanders. But one thing about Sanders that, that is important is that it's a historical accident. Mm-hmm. It's someone who is politicized through the Young People's Socialist League, someone who, through an accident of history, moved to Vermont and then was able to establish himself in local politics. And because Vermont's such a small state, he was able to get a national profile as a senator in a way that wouldn't exist otherwise. So now you have a you know, a Brooklyn socialist who has a national profile and an election year where all the people close to the Democratic establishment don't want to contest Hillary Clinton for a variety of reasons. He's someone who takes this opportunity to run for president at this last moment at the very end of his career to get his messages out mm-hmm. there. All of a sudden we have a socialist as right now the most popular politician in the United States. That to me is an accident. And we, we have to in a way allow rooms for accidents in all of our theories of history. So I think there's a lot of hope, and Jackman has expressed a hope, that this could be a last gasp kind of resurgence of American socialism. I think it's just as likely that this is just kind of the last hurrah of mm. like of the flaming out of a, of a very noble, long-standing tradition. Uh, and maybe it'll reconstitute itself in various forms with a different name. But, you know, we're kind of, I guess, among the last holdouts still. But, you know, it's nice to see that we have a social majority for a lot of our ideas, at least the basic social democratic kind of platform that we're we're pushing. If Sanders was an accident, was Trump an accident? I guess I'll phrase it differently. I think a lot of people on the right or in the center would say that Trump is somehow an anomaly or he's he's taken over the Republican Party inorganically. But I think some people on the left would also have it that um, that Trump might have somehow, Trump might be an organic outgrowth out of things that have been going on in the Republican Party. Yeah, I think the best way to explain is that a bunch of kind of like, like middle class crazies were empowered by, at least within the Republican Party, uh, they constituted the Tea Party, and that critique growed and developed through the influence of the birther movement and other developments into something a little bit more nationalist, in a sense, in that more open to protectionism, more combative towards, kind of, for lack of a better word, the neoliberal agenda of a lot of Republican elites, and they lost control of their party. But I think they initially played a huge role in empowering these people to begin with, including billionaires like the um, Koch brothers and, mm-hmm. and others. I think it organically came out of the Republican Party. I think I hesitate to say the extent to which Trump is that new of a phenomenon. I think the Republican Party has always been more right of center by some considerable margin than the Democrats are left of center. Okay. If you, you know, I think the Democrats aren't really left of center at all. But um, I think you have one kind of mainstream normal party of capital that also has a bit of a popular base, like the Democratic Party and their corollaries are more or less the Christian Democrat-like parties in Europe. Uh, then you have one party that is very much in its tone and sentiments and whatnot, not a regular party of capital anymore, one that's very closer to the kind of, I don't say fascism at all, I think that's ridiculous and hyperbolic, but let's say the uh, the Freedom Party in, in Austria or whatnot, kind of like a populist right-slash-right-wing mm. kind of formation that has support of some segments of capital, but um, in general is, is, is adrift. And I think that phenomenon is really has been long in the, the making in the Republican Party. And I don't think there's anything necessarily that unusual about Trump other than his rhetoric and bombast. So am I worried about Trump? Not necessarily. I mean, I'd be more worried about the, the fact that the Democratic Party probably would have lost his general election if anyone else besides for Trump had been nominated. And I'm more worried about the fact that most white workers continue to stay at home and not vote. 
some vote Republican, a lot still vote Democrat, but most don't vote. And this idea, I think this should be a huge concern. You know, this is still 60 plus percent of workers, you know, the vast majority. And you wouldn't under, you wouldn't think this if you listen to some of the rhetoric coming from liberal pundits and mm -hmm. others who basically are just saying, oh, F them. You know, they're essentially all in the camp of Trump or hopelessly reactionary or whatever, you know. I think I think there is a set of underlying resentments and grievances that that is expressing itself in all sorts of ways. I think the most common way, though, is obviously just not voting and wishing ill upon Clinton or Trump. I don't know how you feel about prediction or prophecy, but if Clinton wins, what do the next four or eight years look like? Well, let's see. If Clinton wins, I think there's going to be pressure sooner for her to follow through with some of the Democratic platforms. I don't think she's going to get the same honeymoon as that Obama did. I think there's a lot of hatred towards Hillary Clinton, you know, some of which is somewhat irrational in that she's not too far away from where Obama is on a lot of these issues. Some of it makes sense considering she's associated with a turn or evolution in the Democratic Party people don't like. She had a hard-fought primary against someone people did like, you know, there's a variety of reasons for it. No doubt sexism also plays, you know, some role in this, but I think it's a good thing that that there will be pressure on Clinton, you know, the second week of her first term, not the second year of her second term, and I think that's a, a good thing. Now, with the composition of Congress, with the effects, and this is one thing where the liberals aren't overstating it, the effects of the 2010 redistricting are pretty significant as relates to the House, and I don't see the House flipping, which means that you still have the excuse of divided government. So I think you still have the continued problem that will face American democracy for most of our lifetime, which is the problem of divided government, the filibuster, and all these other rules actually preventing meaningful action on a lot of things, pressing things and issues. So there is a certain crisis of a governing crisis that will continue, a slow crisis. I don't see her breaking through. The real question is whether she's still pressured, despite having a divided government, by the left and, more importantly, by the labor unions. Because when we say the left, we're really talking about thousands of people whose ideas might have some wider resonance, but we're not talking about actual people with a social base, with constituencies, with you know actual things that could pressure Clinton. So I think a lot of any potential future struggle needs to come through a rejuvenated labor movement, because those are the people that actually have the power and weight to still shape a lot of U.S. society and policy. But historically, they've been very conservative in how they use that power. Maybe as things become more desperate, as their positions continue to be undermined, maybe we'll see some fight back within the labor movement. But basically, my best case scenario is the continued developing of a identity and a politics to the left of liberalism coming out of Sanders supporters and, and other people in that wing of the Democratic Party. I don't think there's any hope in developing in the short term a third party. If you look at a party like the Green Party, it's like an association of like a band of well-intentioned people and social misfits with no base, right? And I say this is someone who's going to like, you know, probably vote for Jill Stein next month, but it's it's not, you know, it's a moral decision that doesn't have any weight or constituency in US society. So, I think there's still probably room for socialist currents to grow and develop, but our success will always be relative to how deep and dark our weakness was. And maybe our best case corollary is, if there is going to be a return to reform liberalism, if there is going to be a Reagan to follow, you know, Goldwater, whoever's going to follow Sanders, you know, we'll be like the libertarian currents within that 
Reagan coalition. Okay. We'll be that corollary. Okay. We'll be kind of um, one set and current of ideas that will struggle for hegemony in a much broader movement, but I don't see the socialist movement developing its own independent capacity to act anytime soon. So in a small extent, in certain locales, we could definitely run, we should be running open socialists in, in local races. We definitely need more publications like Jackman that are explicitly socialist. But fundamentally, I mean, it just seems fantastical for, for me to think that, all right, now after people tried Sanders and he almost won, so the next thing they'll be open to is like Leninism. You know, it's, it's not, it's not going to work. And you are, you know, in a room with portraits of Lenin and, and you know, <laughs> hammer and sickle. Yeah. But you saw it's like, you know, it's, I would like history to be different. I'm just, you asked me to speculate. I'm trying to realistically speculate. Bhaskar, I've taken up a lot of your time. Thanks so much for yeah. talking with me. Thank you so much, Rapper. That was Bhaskar Sankara, founding editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.